Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. I want to remind you, because there's so much news about big tech censorship, all of this is explained, including who's behind it in my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. I already know this is going to be one of Full Measure's more popular podcasts because it's about this week's upcoming program, my interview with a top government virologist. I ask him a lot of the questions you'd probably like to ask to get the straight answers on the government's position about a lot of coronavirus-related topics. You might be surprised by some of what you learn. I really appreciate the time I got to spend with Dr. John Dye recently. He's Chief of Viral Immunology and the Deputy Director of Foundational Sciences at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. That's at Fort Detrick, Maryland. This interview will be airing in two parts. The first part will be this coming Sunday on Full Measure. That's January 17th. And then the second part will be part of our broadcast a week later. But I'm going to talk in this podcast about the things that I asked Dr. Dye and the answers that he gave. He speaks for the government. He works at this military institute, although he's a civilian. But I think it's really important to get the government's official position and answers on a wide-ranging set of topics. We talked about the vaccines, how much immunity the vaccines provide, what's the difference between an RNA vaccine and one that's not, and so on. So let's start with the beginning. What does this research institute do where Dr. Dye works? He said that this is the place that helps develop diagnostic tools, primarily the tests, to figure out whether somebody's infected with coronavirus. They're also responsible for developing what they call the animal models to allow them to figure out whether a particular vaccine or a treatment works outside of testing it on people. And then they also test samples that come out of the people when the people are involved in studies to determine whether a particular vaccine or therapy is working. So I asked him, have all the vaccines skipped the animal testing so far because of the emergency nature of their use? As you know, the research was truncated and accelerated, and these vaccines are being used under an emergency authorization because it was deemed to be so important. So they did not do the normal animal testing ahead of time, some of which happens at this research institute, the U.S. Army facility. Dr. Dye told me that they've actually not exactly skipped the animal studies. They've been doing them in parallel. And he talked about that when people ask about Operation Warp Speed, they compressed a five to 10 year mission of how long it normally takes to develop something into 10 to 12 months. 
And Dr. Dai insisted it's not because the vaccine that results lacks safety. He says the safety profile is there. It's that they're doing certain things at the same time, not in a sequential order. And by that, he says normally because of the way funding works, drug companies would develop the vaccine in a particular order and then kill it after a certain point if it doesn't look like it's worth developing further and move forward with the next one. And it takes a long time. But now they're doing a lot of the work at the same time. It's very expensive, but they have the money because the U.S. government has invested a lot of money in this, and it gives them multiple vaccines and a lot of research being done at the same time. So then I asked, well, if the vaccine is already being used in the human population, normally animal studies are done first, what is the point of continuing to study it in animals? Is there something that we could learn that would change something? And Dr. Dye said, what we don't know about in the human population or the animal population, and they're working on this with both, is the longevity of the vaccine. What's the duration of the immunity? How long does it last? What does a protective immune response of a particular vaccine look like? And they can really start to look at that in much detail with the animal models. And also with the animals, the studies being conducted now, they can look at transmission, for example. He says how easy it is to pass this virus from one animal to another because there's still a lot of mystery about that in people. A lot of assumptions and presumptions, some of which have proven incorrect along the way, but these animal studies they're doing now could help figure out a lot of that in an environment that you can't control when you're just looking at the real-world population. Now, there have been some questions raised and discussed as to whether there will be changes in how vaccines for coronavirus are administered. They could learn things in the human population or with the animal models, perhaps, that would suggest maybe you don't need two doses of the ones we're giving two doses for, or maybe you could mix and match, which is not something they've been recommending, that you start with one brand of vaccine and get the second dose of the other. But one really, really important thing to talk about, I think, because there's been some misreporting and there have been some misconceptions about this, is the effectiveness rate and how long immunity lasts with the coronavirus vaccines. Dr. Dye says, according to the literature so far, we're still learning a lot as the vaccines are used in more and more people, but for the Pfizer vaccine, effectiveness is considered to be anywhere between 90 and 95%. And for the Moderna vaccine, 95% from the phase three clinical trials. The number, Dr. Dye says, will continue to change as more and more people are vaccinated and they will modify those numbers. But let's say we're starting at a point of 90 to 95% efficacy, meaning it works in 90 to 95% of the people. So 5 to 10% of the people so far will not get the proper immune response to prevent coronavirus. That's something important to know. But what does it mean when a vaccine is 90 to 95% effective. The way some reporters talk about it, there's no caveat given. It's as if you take the vaccine and that lasts the rest of your life somehow. But in fact, as Dr. Dye answered when I asked the question, most vaccines, including the coronavirus vaccines, are not efficacious for the rest of your life. For most of the vaccines that we get, he says, we actually need a booster every five to 10 years because the immunity wears off. 
And he said, we don't know what the necessary booster will be for this particular virus, but it's fair to say, he says, that if we're going to continue developing immunity to coronavirus, we will need booster vaccines. That means if you're getting the coronavirus vaccines, don't think, according to Dr. Dai, that you're just getting it once or the double dose one time and that that will last. And I pointed out that after reading the studies, I saw that these vaccines so far were only proven to last or be effective for a period of a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Yes, you heard me right. Now, hopefully they will last much longer, but at the time they were first being used, we only knew that these vaccines worked in the 90 to 95% of the healthy population they were tested in for a couple of weeks up to a couple of months. Dr. Dai says as we continue to have more time pass, as we go further and further out from the time when the first people were vaccinated, we'll start to get more information about how long the immunity lasts. And he points out that not everybody's the same, of course. Everybody has different reactions. Some people, he says, may need a booster shot after six months, where some people, depending on their particular immunity response, may not need it for a year or two. But I asked, is there any reason to think that at this point, that suddenly after two or three months, the immunity just falls off from the vaccine, kind of goes away? And Dr. Dai said at this point, it's very unlikely that that happens. We just don't know, but he thinks that's unlikely. But he explained to me that after you are vaccinated, when you come in contact with the virus, that the virus acts as a booster to the vaccine because you're building an immune response based on the vaccine to the virus. So every time you get infected again with the real virus, you're boosting your immune response, which seems to imply that once you have the proper vaccination, it's a benefit to come into contact if your immune response is right. It's a further benefit for you to come in contact with coronavirus to continue boosting your immune response. So I asked how that notion comes into play with the idea that after we get vaccinated, I think we're being told to avoid exposure and still wear masks and still isolate. Why is that if, in fact, the exposure of the coronavirus after vaccination boosts your immune response? And Dr. Dai said, just until we get this under control, it's best to limit someone's ability to spread the virus. And even if you get the vaccine, you can still spread the virus, he says. It's possible for a very small window, he says, to spread the virus to other people once you're vaccinated. So that's why they're saying to go ahead and keep doing the normal protections even after you get vaccinated. So when he's saying that it's possible to spread the virus after you get the vaccine, he's not talking about because there's coronavirus in the vaccine. That's not what he means. He's saying that, let's say you get the vaccine and then you come in contact with coronavirus the coronavirus enters your system and your immune response will clear it if the vaccine works, but it takes some time. It's not an immediate process that happens with a snap of a finger. So there is a short amount of time if that happens when you may be infectious to other people. So what's behind these recommendations to go ahead and stay isolated and masked as much as possible, even after vaccination, is to minimize that time when you could be spreading the coronavirus to other people, even though you've been vaccinated. So then I wanted to know what happens in the time period between the first dose of the vaccine and the second dose. And Dr. Dice said, when you get the first dose, 
and people who have not been infected yet with coronavirus, you get a spike in a particular protein for the very first time, and you develop memory cells in your body. He describes it by saying you have cells in your system, immune cells called B and T cells, that generate immunity. And you develop those memory cells so that they're floating around in your bloodstream. This is how he describes it. So that when you come in contact with a virus or a booster, these memory cells reproduce and produce more and more, and you develop more and more immunity as you go along. So the initial dose, that first shot, gives your body the first initial taste of the virus, he says, just in that little, what he calls, glycoprotein, the spike protein. And then you get more of it with the boost, which comes later, and then more of that good stuff if you actually become infected with the virus after vaccination. So the in-between time between the first dose and the second dose, he says your immunity is building, but you shouldn't consider yourself as safe as after the second dose. So they've done studies in both animal and people where you're building the immunity, you're generating those memory cells he talked about, and then at 21 days for the Pfizer vaccine and 28 days for the Moderna vaccine, you get the second boost. You're boosting those memory cells that you generated or started generating 21 or 28 days ago to have them expand and produce more. You're building that immunity. So then I wanted to know, there are so many vaccines in development. Why are the first two that are approved in the United States ones that need a boost, a second shot, 21 or 28 days later, when there are some vaccines, we're told, that will not need that boost, just a single dose, which it would seem to be preferable, cheaper, safer, not require a second visit to the doctor. And he explained, this gets technical and I can't pretend to understand all of it, I'll just give you his explanation. The Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are RNA vaccines, And in principle, he says, an RNA vaccine in the past, the duration of the immune response and how quickly you develop that immunity, he says, is somewhat limited, which is why you need that second boost. Some of the other vaccines, he named the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the Novavax vaccine, and others, such as AstraZeneca, it's an entirely different modality of getting that protein into your system. He says, you don't need that additional boost because This kind of vaccine drives the immunity internally without needing that secondary exposure. Each vaccine, he says, has a different profile for how many times your body needs to see it to develop the best immunity. But he did say that even the other vaccines that don't require the second dose 21 or 28 days later, he says you will eventually likely need a boost because immunity will wane over time. Okay, what is an RNA vaccine exactly? It refers to the delivery system, Dr. Dai says. They're giving you the RNA for the spike protein into your system, and then your body makes the spike protein out of the RNA. The other vaccine systems do it differently, and again, I'll just tell you the way he explained it. They actually embed the protein itself. They provide the protein rather than providing the blueprint on how to make the protein like the RNA vaccines do. Very different modalities. I asked, why not test the vaccines in children? Because I noticed when I looked at the approvals and the studies for the first two in emergency use here in the U.S., 
that I think they went down to 16 years old for one, but didn't approve it for children that young. I think they only approved it for 18 and maybe for 21 for the other. And yet I've heard people say kids shouldn't go back to school until they're all vaccinated. Well, right now there isn't even an approval to vaccinate children with either of these vaccines that are in emergency use. And Dr. Dye explained that traditionally, you know, they experiment with vaccines or give them to the initial population in this case in a base of people age 18 to 45. And then they'll expand it into the elderly and the young. Of course, this is complicated if they're testing people who are healthy age 18 to 45, but then they're going to be administering the vaccines to unhealthy people much, much older than that, and then eventually people younger than that, what do we really know about the impact, how long the immunity lasts, the effectiveness rate, the safety profile? They're learning about a lot of that right now. But Dr. Dye thinks ultimately these vaccines will probably be approved for children. So maybe there's the question of when will the effectiveness, the long-term effectiveness pass two weeks, past three months, be determined for the vaccines. We're in an emergency use because we're in a crisis, so they can be used. We've decided, even if it turned out they don't last very long because we decided it was so important to have them. But as far as efficacy, that's when Dr. Dye says you have to have a certain number of people vaccinated, and then a certain number of people have to actually come into contact with coronavirus to understand whether it protected them or not. And then you have to have a number of months and then years of use of the vaccine, which we don't have yet. We're not going to have till time ticks by to really know how long the immunity lasts. And to be able to compare that, by the way, with how long natural immunity lasts once you've been infected with coronavirus and fought it off. So Dr. Dye talked a lot about this coronavirus, COVID-19, being something we haven't seen in our lifetime, nothing like this. And it raises the question, was this from the Wuhan lab in China? Some of the experiments that they were conducting, altering coronavirus for various reasons, did something escape or get released from the Wuhan lab to cause this? Or has that been entirely ruled out? Have we decided that this was something definitively that came straight from nature without a stop at the Wuhan lab and some modification. And you may have heard some of the media for months have tried to insist the notion that this came from the Wuhan lab has been debunked. That's false, has not been debunked. And maybe the last thing that you heard in public about it from an official source was some months ago, our government said that our intel agencies were looking at what they considered a likely connection to the Wuhan lab. And then poof, Nothing was ever said again about it. And reporters, I kept watching, didn't ask about it at subsequent briefings or when they got close to some of the officials that could answer the question. Nobody was asking. Now, surely they have some answers. I'm quite certain our intelligence community and our health officials have been analyzing the DNA and every component of this since the first sample that they had. Why aren't we hearing about the results? Why aren't we getting public reports on what we know so far. So when I asked Dr. Dai, have we ruled out the Wuhan lab connection? He said, no. He said, at this point, nothing has been ruled out. We do not know. It is undetermined. This is his quote. 
It is undetermined whether it was from a laboratory or from an environmental exposure, and we probably never will know. Why is he saying that we probably will never know? Well, the reason he gives is that to figure out with certainty whether a virus came from a laboratory or came from the wild, you would want to look for genetic signatures of the particular virus. And to do that with coronavirus, you would have to have what he calls the earliest passages or the earliest versions of the virus. Well, most of the coronaviruses that we have that are available to the research community are not those early versions that we would have to get from China and we'd have to actually get samples from the Wuhan lab. So what we're looking at when we're analyzing the coronavirus is something that has changed since it first started. And Dr. Dai says what we really need is a snapshot of the beginning, which we don't have. So it's my understanding, and I told Dr. Dai this, that we asked China and the Wuhan lab very early on to give us samples so that we could make those very comparisons. But China has refused to provide that assistance, that help that we would need to make that definitive link. And this is pretty audacious because we were funding the Wuhan lab, believe it or not. Our National Institutes of Health was funding research at this communist Chinese lab, and we had researchers partnering with researchers there. Our researchers from universities here working on bat coronavirus research at the Wuhan lab. So even though we were funding and partners with them, when the time came where we really needed to see this certain sample, China would not give it to us. And to this day, as far as I know, hasn't provided us with what we need. More with what I learned from Dr. John Dai after a short break. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The news as we once knew it no longer exists. It's become a product molded and shaped to suit the narrative. Facts that don't fit are omitted. Off-narrative people and views are controversialized or neatly deposited down the memory hole. Partisan pundits, analysts, and anonymous sources fill news space, leaving little room for facts. The line between opinion and fact has disappeared. In my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, I reveal the struggles inside newsrooms where journalism used to rule. For the first time, dozens of current and former top national news executives, producers, and reporters give insider accounts speaking with shocking candor about our industry's devolution. Buy Slanted today for yourself or as a holiday gift for someone you care about anywhere. We're back, and a reminder that this is some of the behind-the-scenes conversation I had with virologist Dr. John Dye. A portion of this interview that I conducted with him on these topics will be airing Sunday, January 17th on the episode of Full Measure with another part of his interview talking about what treatments are working and therapies on January 24th, a week after. And one thing that occurred to me 
when we're talking about this warp speed vaccine development for coronavirus, they say vaccines are difficult for RNA viruses like coronavirus. Well, AIDS is an RNA virus. And after something like 40 years, we still don't have a vaccine for AIDS. I asked Dr. Dye that if we had some sort of emergency program for AIDS, would we be able to develop that vaccine too in a matter of 10 to 12 months if we just threw a lot of money at it the way that we've been able to get the coronavirus vaccines? And Dr. Dye said it's completely different because, and this is interesting, the AIDS virus, just like the Ebola virus, he says, changes much faster than the coronavirus and the virus outruns the vaccine or the treatments. That's how we put it. But that doesn't happen with coronavirus, at least with this particular coronavirus, it stays similar enough, long enough, that we were able to develop a vaccine or multiple vaccines that are said to be effective against it, but not been able to do that with AIDS or Ebola. Next, I wanted to know the latest thinking about whether coronavirus can be passed along asymptomatically by someone who has no symptoms. This is super important because the whole reason we are supposed to wear masks and isolate even if we feel healthy, even if we don't feel sick, is because the majority of the people, scientists say, who get coronavirus won't have any symptoms. But the assumption is they could pass it and create a worse pandemic and expand the epidemic. So that's why we're all wearing masks and isolating and so on. But there are actually a couple of studies I saw that imply there is little to no transmission by people who are asymptomatic. In other words, there may not be anything to worry about for people who are otherwise healthy. And if that's the case, that kind of upends all the measures we're trying to take, including the lockdowns and the shutdowns. So I asked Dr. Dai about that, and he said, at this point, the literature indicates the chances of asymptomatic people passing along coronavirus to somebody else are minimal. We're talking, for example, all the children who get it but usually don't have any symptoms and people are worried they could be carrying it to their parents and grandparents. Again, he says, at this point, the literature indicates the chances of that are minimal. But he did say they feel it is possible. There is a possibility that someone who's asymptomatic could spread the virus to other people. It's not as easy to do so, he says, or as common as somebody who's actually coughing and sneezing and having spray come out of their mouth. But he says the government and the literature still considers it a possibility. Next topic, what's the difference between a new variant and a new strain of coronavirus? I have heard, at least early on, I heard reporters misuse the word strain and people in their common conversations saying, oh, there's new strains, there's numerous strains, there's a new strain. And in fact, what's happening is there's a variant, which is different. And Dr. Dai explained that to me. What we're seeing now when we're talking about new things emerging, it's a variant. So in virology language, as Dr. Dai said, there has to be a certain amount of genetic difference or diversity between the two to say that they are distinct strains of a virus. The number of changes occurring between one person and the next and the next have to be different enough to be able to classify the new thing as a different strain. And it's a good thing that we are not seeing new strains. We're seeing 
new variants because when you talk about a strain, he said that means that a vaccine or a treatment that was developed for the original might not work because the new strain is more divergent. But when the differences that we're seeing are smaller, then that means the vaccines that we've already developed and the treatments we already have are more likely to work. So he said it's not necessarily alarming that we're seeing, you may have heard the United Kingdom variant identified in the United States. Dr. Dye says it was just a matter of time. Now, when you think about all the work and money that's gone into figuring out what to do about COVID-19, and you probably hear people every day or two say that there's going to be another, you know, there will be another pandemic, another animal virus crossing over into people. There will be more coronaviruses. Well, how can we be prepared for that without entirely starting over? And that's one of the things that Dr. Dye's Institute and others are trying to do. They're trying to develop treatments and therapeutics now that they refer to as pan-coronavirus treatments and therapeutics. The idea would be you can come up with a vaccine or a treatment that would protect not just against this specific one, but any coronavirus that we can find out about. Maybe the next one that they think is most likely to emerge into our environment. So for example, they are working on treatments at Dr. Dye's institution that don't just focus on COVID-19, which is actually called SARS-CoV-2. They're trying to find stuff that simultaneously works against SARS-1 and MERS, which happened 20, 30 years ago, and other stuff that could happen in the future. They even are including in their current research two circulating coronaviruses that are in bats right now in China, all to try to be prepared for the future. And last topic for the day, I asked why, if the government considers vaccines so important for coronavirus in this fight, pushing them so hard, why aren't they mandatory? I found out that they're not even making them mandatory among the military troops, and they can make them do pretty much anything. They're being offered as an option. And it turns out it's just a complicated question because Dr. Dai said, this is not a 100% lethal virus. It's not as lethal as Ebola and other viruses where you would almost have to just tell everybody they have to get the vaccine. This is something that is not fatal to most people, he says. And therefore, you come against questions of freedoms and civil rights. It's not just a medical determination. So right now, Dr. Dice says it's a matter of opinion and personal liberties as to whether you want to receive the vaccine or not. Maybe that's easier said than done because you've heard, as I have, that there are people who are advocating that the vaccinations be mandatory for people who have certain jobs or for children to get into school or for college students to get back into universities. We'll have to see how all of that plays out. Again, watch the full interview with Dr. John Dye, Sunday, January 10th. You can catch the replay if you miss it on TV. You can catch the replay anytime at fullmeasure.news online. We post these segments around 11 in the morning Eastern time on Sundays. So you don't have to catch us on TV. It's easy to get us online at fullmeasure.news. You can also watch us live or on demand anytime on our app STIRR, S-T-I-R-R. You can download anywhere. And part two of my conversation with Dr. John Dye will be played 
on Sunday, January 24th on Full Measure. And I know you're going to find that really interesting because we touch on other stuff besides vaccines that could help with coronavirus. What are the emerging therapeutics and treatments that are turning out to work? There's some interesting stuff in there that I hadn't heard of. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out all the Full Measure After Hours podcasts, as well as my other podcast called the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast, wherever you like to listen. Don't forget to learn a lot about what's going on with big tech censorship and the manipulation of the news media by reading my new bestseller, Slanted, how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism. There's hope. And remember, information is power. You can get some today by reading Slanted. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.